You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Tuesday, December 1st, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Peter Bookvar, Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Advisory Group and editor of The Book Report. But first, with the day's stories, Haley Drasnan. Hey, Ash. Markets were up on Tuesday. The mood is optimistic going into December. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq were both trading at intraday record highs, while the Dow was just below its peak of last week's record high. Today's action looks to be more in tune with what we saw for the majority of November, which is more risk on value and small cap outperforming at the expense of weaker treasuries. We're also seeing the VIX coming down today. It appears vaccines are being priced in. Both Pfizer and Moderna are seeking emergency approval from the U.S. and Europe. Pfizer and its partner BioNTech have regulatory clearance for their vaccine in the EU and could even start shipping within hours of approval by the end of the month. But today, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell is warning that while vaccines provide hope, big risks still remain. Powell testified before the Senate Banking Committee today, cautioning lawmakers that the vaccine news is, quote, very positive for the medium term, but there will still be a lot of challenges that the economy faces, including, quote, timing, production, distribution, and efficacy across different groups. He also cautioned that the pace of economic recovery has moderated as we're seeing jobless claims have climbed in back-to-back weeks, and the jobs report that's due out on Friday is expected to show hiring slowed down in November. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin also testified and spoke to his decision to end Fed programs that have kept credit flowing to state and local governments and also to medium-sized businesses. Mnuchin asked the central bank to return more than $400 billion in unused funds that Congress had appropriated earlier this year. Powell has disagreed with this, admitting that these programs could continue to remain as a backstop, especially to key credit markets, as they've really helped restore the flow of credit from private lenders through normal channels. He even said the programs, quote, helped unlock almost $2 trillion of funding. There's clearly a dichotomy here on Main Street. Small businesses are suffering very badly, and yet the Fed's programs to alleviate these problems and provide capital to those struggling businesses is not all there, and it's really quite strange. No doubt there was tension in that room today. Mnuchin at one point was even accused of malpractice by Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio for letting these programs expire and really only caring about the stock market performance on his way out. In some ways, it's like taking away the punch bowl just as he leaves the party. 
Meanwhile, a group of bipartisan lawmakers unveiled a new $908 billion stimulus plan today, which includes $16 billion into vaccine distribution, testing, and also contact tracing. It's being called an interim package to provide support until President-elect Biden takes office in January. This all comes as we learn today that Biden will be appointing two BlackRock executives to his team. BlackRock's head of sustainable investing, Brian Deese, will run the National Economic Council. And Adewell Adeyamo, a former chief of staff to BlackRock's chief executive, is expected to be named today as the number two at the Treasury Department. Back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Peter, welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. Hey, Vash. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. This is our first show together, um, and we were talking a little bit offline about your hypothesis, about your thesis uh, for the post-COVID era and inflation. Tell us a little bit about what your framework is there. Well, I started to pay attention uh, back in late March in, into April and May when we saw this spike in food prices as these major supply disruptions caused by a lot of factories being shut down, uh, rolling uh COVID spread in a lot of these facilities that uh, inhibited the delivery, literally, of food to supermarkets. And we saw this spike because we knew there was obviously a large demand. And that, like, perked my head that this is there's a major supply-demand uh, imbalance, at least in that. And from a supply chain perspective, uh, the global supply chain was turned upside down. And then we, and, and we saw within the statistics, CPI, PCE, we saw them fall for only two months uh, in the middle of the shutdowns. And within a few months after, they not only regained what they lost, but then some. So there's all this talk about a deflationary bust. Well, that lasted two months, and we quickly recaptured uh, the lost uh, decline in uh, the inflation numbers. And then you fast forward, and I started to pay attention to uh, transportation. You talk about the capacity constraints. You take all the different, all the different airlines, passenger airlines, that unbeknownst to passengers, they also do a lot of cargo business. Mm. Well, you take off all this capacity and you get um, tight capacity on the cargo side to the point where FedEx and UPS a bunch of months ago uh, said that they were going to tack on surcharges to holiday packages. Uh, and then I saw double-digit price increases uh, in trucks, in shipping, um, and, and, and uh, by air. If you look at a, watch a lot of the website like or, or freight waves and, and, and others. Uh, to see that in transportation, uh, we saw those price increases. And every single good that gets manufactured in the world ends up on a truck, a ship, or a plane to get from point A to point B. And then you yeah. start watching the, the commodity prices. Started to see over the last couple of months a rise in the grains, corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, the industrial metals, particularly aluminum, nickel, copper, copper, which uh, is now trading at the highest level since 2013. Natural gas even perked its head above $3. And it was really crude oil that was the last uh, commodity to rally. And then you had the vaccine news, and then crude started to join. And I've always been in the belief that within this thesis, that all you need now is a vaccine, which we now have, and the large increase in demand next year, because I, I do think that things are going to come back quicker than, than people think, and that human nature is human nature, 
and uh, there's going to be a rush back in at least certain areas of the economy, that the demand, uh, that the demand side is going to be strong. The supply side is still going to take time to adjust to that. I mean, just take next summer. Everyone's going to go want to go on planes again and on vacations, and, and airlines are not going to snap their finger and bring back all these pilots and all these flight attendants. So they're going to all of a sudden have pricing power. Hotels in certain areas are going to have pricing power. So I think that this is all going to come together in a higher inflationary environment next year, which we're already seeing uh, aspects of it. And if you don't mind, can I read to you some of the comments today in the PMIs that came out? Yeah, please. Uh, this is a really interesting. We were talking about this uh, a little bit offline uh, before we got started here. This is really interesting. This is the ISM uh, uh, manufacturing index that you're talking about. Consensus range on this was 55 to uh, 59.1, the actual at 57.5. Yeah, and I'm actually going to read a quote. Well, the prices paid component of ISM, 17 out of 18 industries surveyed saw price increases. And then market also had its own manufacturing survey where they specifically said on inflation, supply chain disruptions led to a sharper and marked rise in input costs during November as raw material shortages and COVID restrictions pushed prices higher. The rate of cost inflation was the fastest since October 2018, Stronger demand conditions allowed firms to partially pass through greater cost burdens onto clients as selling prices rose at the steepest pace for over two years. And then you had also the, uh, the PMIs from, uh, from Europe and also uh, Asia, China and their PMI, the private sector weighted PMI. Inflationary pressures grew as prices rose at a faster pace than you had in Europe. Um, shortages of inputs are meanwhile contributing to higher price pressures with suppliers increasingly able to raise prices amid a seller's market for many key inputs. Such a restoration of pricing power bodes well for profits and helps ease broader deflationary concerns. Uh, then in the UK, um, input cost inflation accelerated to a two-year high in November. Companies responded by raising uh, their average selling prices to the greatest extent in the year so far. And also noteworthy, uh, back to the, uh, the U.S. ISM, were a lot of labor supply shortages as well uh, for a variety of reasons. Some of that is, is COVID-related, but uh, some of it could last. And um, it may seem strange that there could be uh, labor cost pressures when you still have only half the jobs recovered uh, since pre-COVID. But in certain areas with skills, uh, you very well could have uh, higher uh, cost pressures on the labor side, which you're actually seeing on the transportation side. Uh, trucking companies are paying uh, multi-thousand dollar bonuses uh, to not only retain existing drivers, but to also get new ones. Mm -hmm. And then it gets to, if we're if I'm right, how do, does the market respond to that? How do central banks respond to that? I mean, today, the 10-year uh, inflation break-even closed at the highest level since April 2019. Uh, so that broke out. So uh, I think a lot of things are coming together for a better 2021 for our lives because of the vaccine, but it's going to come with higher price pressures, higher long-term interest rates, and central banks that are just going to be trapped into having to respond to that, but at the same time, uh, afraid to uh, reverse their policies. Yeah. You know, this is a really interesting thesis, especially for people who are thinking about this. Uh, you know, one of the, the difficult things that we talk about on, all the time on RBDB is how you handle multiple time horizons uh, as an investor, as a strategist, as someone who thinks about these markets. You know, one of the things I think we have the chart we can pull it up. Uh, the U.S. currently hospitalized with COVID-19 
uh, chart. It's not a pretty one. You can see uh, on the screen uh, that basically there are three peaks. We're at the third one now, which is uh, far and away the highest. Uh, with the most recent data point uh, being the highest ever recorded over uh, some 94 or 95,000 hospitalizations. Thinking about where we are right now, obviously going into this holiday season, the potential for rising uh, COVID cases, how do you reconcile these two points? How do you think about the time horizons and how do you understand the transition between these regimes? I think that during the summer we had the spike in cases in Texas and Florida and Arizona, a lot of the states that saw sort of a, a, a benign impact in March and April uh, that it sort of caught up to them. And the market looked past that because they knew that, that, that the economies will continuously reopen. And then you get the vaccine news and it makes people immediately shift their attention from point A to point B, looking past what's in between being the, the, the flare up that you're talking about. Right. And just assuming that uh, we're just uh, a few months away from mass inoculation and that the, the, the pickup in cases uh, is not going to be relevant. And that even with the pickup in cases, also the pickup in hospi hospitalizations, that we're just much better prepared in, in, in managing the fallout uh, than certainly we were uh, in March and April. And what's your perspective on U.S. equity markets as we think about uh, as we think about the the challenges that we currently face, and then looking ahead uh, to potential inflation on the horizon? You know, the Dow Jones Industrial Average just had uh, its best month uh, in November since uh, Ronald Reagan's second term, since 1987, cracked 30,000. S and P up uh, some 13 percent to date. Uh, Nasdaq up 38 percent to date. How do you think about what markets are pricing when they look at this very complex scenario? Well, I really like looked at this year as really two different markets. It was tech stocks and then everything else. Mm. And finally in November with the vaccine news that the everything else part started to finally join the party. And the vaccine news gave them reason to look over the valley and to the other side, whereas tech really benefited from the work from home, the stay at home. So the question really is, is that if I'm right, and we do get this inflationary scenario next year where longer term interest rates rise, because short term rates, I'm sure the Fed will try to pin as long as possible to zero, that there'll be parts of the market I think that will, will, be, will benefit from that scenario and the other parts that will not. Those that will benefit will be commodity stocks, will be probably bank stocks that will benefit from a steeper yield curve and a better economy because I do expect a, a much better economy next year. Uh, and, and, and value stocks that have been uh, up until November left for dead, and that the stocks that are very vulnerable if long-term rates rise, if this inflation straight kicks in, is all the high PE, high flyers that people have to keep in mind that going from 40 times revenue, which is how some software companies are being valued, all you need to do is go to 20 times revenue, and that stock gets cut in half right. with no change in its fundamentals just to rethink on the valuation. I mean, you take right. Apple, for example, which I have no position either way in, is that obviously over the past year, stock doubled mostly because of, of the P multiple. Although P, I'm not saying the P multiple is gonna go back to where it was a year ago, but all it has to do is fall from 30 to 20, and that's a 33% decline in the stock. Yeah. So I think that's, that is where the market, stock market, part of the stock market will be at risk, is that there will, there will be the PE multiple uh, rethink. And I think we're already beginning to see 
some yeah. signs of that. You look back mid-October, Fastly, for example, stock that went from 20 up to north of 100 and then reported earnings that didn't meet the high expectations. And the stock got cut in half within a couple of weeks. Now, of course, it was trading at like 45 times sales. It was an egregious valuation. But to me, it was a sign that maybe investors are beginning to focus a little bit more on valuation. That also coincided with a rise in longer term interest rates. Then today, you had Zoom. Zoom still reported a good quarter, still reported great guidance, but the stock trading at a $130 billion valuation, I'm sorry, yeah, market cap for a company that's going to do $2.5 billion of revenue. Right. That, that, that's an egregious valuation. So it's, no, it's no, tell, no, no say on the company fundamentals, but today was a valuation rethink. And while the NASDAQ yeah. is hitting new highs again, I think we're going to see more of those valuation rethinks, particularly if, if the 10-year yield, for example, breaks 1%, which today you know, we came within seven basis points of that. Right. You know, you bring up an interesting point, the idea that when these stocks get overbought, uh, when earnings are not rising uh, nearly at the rate uh, that the prices are, you set this up for this perilous scenario where uh, where an earnings miss uh, can create almost a jump condition uh, back down to a much lower valuation. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and if you want to really take this one step further and think that this value trade has legs, well, European markets look attractive. European companies that are, are the, uh, it's been a wasteland of value that has been left for dead. There are plenty of opportunities. The entire UK stock market essentially is, 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 is a list of, of value companies. Uh, and then if the dollar continues to weaken, which today closed at the lowest level since uh, uh, 2018, uh, you're going to see a continued rally in emerging markets, particularly Asia, which I happen to be very bullish on. Right. So, Peter, to get back to your earlier point, for people who are more familiar with uh, equity markets uh, than fixed income markets, talk a little bit about the mechanism uh, by which investors may expect higher rates of inflation and therefore uh, bid down these bonds to higher yields. Well, we know that the Fed has uh, all control of the short end through uh, the Fed funds rate. They've, of course, uh, initiated QE5, I call it. Uh, but that has been really maturities less than five years. And so that means that anything really past that is more market driven. Now, the 10 year still has sort of this gravitational pull uh, to the shorter rates because of what the Fed's doing uh, on the short end and also through QE. But there's still market mechanisms that drive it. I like looking at the 30 year yield in terms of market messaging because it's the furthest out on the curve and it's least able to, it's at least manipulated by Fed behavior. Right. So it's that part of the market that is going to be driven by expectations for inflation and growth. And if growth is picking up, if the vaccine is going to accelerate that process next year, which I think it will, then you're going to see the market sort of tighten for the Fed. So the Fed can, can do all at once with uh, rates at zero, but the market's still going to do what it's going to do. And the Fed's going to have a choice. Do they... They, they let it go and they let the curve steepen and, and the economy is going to grow? Or do they try to fight it because they're afraid of what a rise in longer term rates will do to the economy and institute yield curve control or extend out the maturities of their QE program, which is chatter about, which makes right. no sense to me. And then the Fed gets into a situation where they, they want to essentially pick a fight with the market, which I think they end up losing. Uh, but it may be a fight that they're willing to take. But then it gets to the whole irony is that if they don't want higher long-term rates, then why would they root for higher inflation? Right. So it, it's going to be 
a very interesting 2021 because what we learned in 2020 is the economy is not the markets, the markets is not the economy. Well, maybe that's that flips in 2021 where we get a better economy, but markets get challenged by inflation and higher interest rates and uh, uh, deflation in P multiples. Yeah. What's your what's your uh, what's your outlook? What is your expectation for what the Fed will do? Do we see some sort of operation twist on steroids? Do we see yield curve controls? Do you think they attempt to do this, or do they let the the, the long end of the curve float? Well, the problem right now that the Fed, uh, I don't know if they've acknowledged it yet, is that you look at the housing market, and we're seeing price increases in housing that it's five, six, seven percent then all of a sudden now is offsetting the benefit of lower mortgage rates. So we're in a situation where you're, you're back to pricing out the, the, the first-time homebuyer. Right. So the Fed instituting QE on the longer end, they're doing Operation Twist. I mean, what do they want to exaggerate these home price gains and see price gains of 8 9 10% and, and, right. and completely uh, damage that first-time buyer? So the Fed's sort of in a bind in, in, in trying to do that. Uh, at the same time, I do think they wouldn't mind some steepness in the yield curve, considering what the flattening has done to, to bank profits. So to your question of, of, of what they will tolerate, to what extent they will allow longer-term rates to rise before they react, I think that's just a wait and see. Because if that longer-term rate rise is mostly the inflation aspect and less growth, even though they want higher inflation, I think they'll be less tolerant of that. If there's more growth, maybe less inflation in that rise in long rates, then I think they'll let that go. But up until this point, you know, the Fed and all central banks have sort of had this license to print, license to do whatever they want because the inflation numbers have been so low. If all of a sudden those inflation numbers start to go against them and you see monthly CPI or PCE gains of three tenths, four tenths, which I think is possible next year, well, then that's going to be sort of kryptonite on, on, on these central banks. And they're going to be rendered um, uh, much more impotent. And, um, and uh, it's going to be a situation that they're not accustomed to because we obviously haven't had higher inflation in a while. And I want to, I want to just specify that that. Inflation is more of a, a cyclical event. You know, the secular trend in goods is down because production gets more efficient, technology lowers the price of goods. It's always services inflation that, that rises pretty consistently. But now you're going to marry temporary goods inflation with persistent services inflation, and you're going to get this bout of inflation. How long it lasts, I'm not sure. I don't know if it's six months, one year, two years. But it's something that is, I think, potentially going to, 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 to shock uh, the global bond markets, which are completely unprepared for any hint of higher inflation, considering where yields are. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, and the Fed's inability to get to the target of two percent uh, since uh, you know since the GFC, right? Which which was a nonsense target to begin with. It's a nonsense target for all central banks, and and two percent is is not a target that is best for the economy. It's a target that central bankers feel is best for themselves because they assume that if inflation's at two, that interest rates will be at two or above, 
Therefore, they would have rates to cut on an economic downturn. But with rates at zero, they, they've rendered that argument ridiculous. Um, but unfortunately, they should be careful of what they wish for with yeah. $17 trillion of, of, of bonds uh, trading below zero. Yeah, you know, this is such an important point, I should say. Yeah, I was going to say, this is such an important point, the idea uh, that there's this argument that says this isn't the ideal rate of inflation, it's the ideal rate for the Fed to be able to take increased policy action uh, in, the case of, uh, in the case of a systemic downturn. That's, it. That's exactly right. The, there's no econometric model that says 2% is the right inflation rate for an economy. It is strictly, and, and Powell has said this. He said, yeah, if, as, as I said, inflation's at two. That implies that we can have the Fed funds rate at two or above. Therefore, we have rates to cut. If inflation is too low, that means we have to keep rates low. Therefore, we have no rates to cut to respond to econo any economic downturn. I, I think it's a bad argument, but that's, that's their thesis. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like I don't know what the metaphor is that uh, the ideal body temperature is 101. So uh, if you run a higher fever, you can take aspirin. I don't know. It just doesn't really seem to make sense. No, not at all. And 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 I like to sort of personalize when people say inflation and two percent. I'm like replace the word inflation with cost of living, and go to yeah. a Walmart and tell the person that's living paycheck to paycheck that an annual increase in their cost of living of two percent is somehow good for them. Right. The counter argument, I guess, from Keynesians or neo-Keynesians uh, goes something like the following. Uh, the threat and the danger uh, of deflation is so great uh, that hovering near 0% inflation is a risk for the economy. Well, that yeah, and that argument stems from because of all the debt that we have. And if that you with all this debt, if all of a sudden you have a deflation uh, scenario with prices, that companies have reduced profits, they therefore then cannot uh, service that debt, and you have a major problem. But it was it was the desire for higher inflation that encouraged uh, low rates and all this debt accumulation that then boxes them in uh, of the problem of of, of 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 low rates and then wanting higher inflation that then leads to higher rates, with, which then uh, implodes an over indebted economy. So it's um, but when you look at you know over time. First of all, inflation, deflation is just a symptom of economic activity. Sometimes you get periods of strong demand and weak supply and vice versa, and sometimes they're in equilibrium. But it's just a symptom, and central banks have turned it upside down, where they think that the inflation number should then drive economic activity. And that really started, uh, certainly with the BOJ, and thinking that if we generate higher inflation, that will generate faster growth. But it's actually low inflation that could be the impetus for stronger growth. Remember in the late 90s, it was strong growth, low inflation. That was the thesis. Yeah. You know, talking about higher rates, let's take a look at a historical chart just to give people some context uh, of what uh, of what the historical range of these rates are. Going back the last 40 years, that 30-year uh, Treasury rate uh, peaking sometime in, uh, in Ronald Reagan's first term, I think it was September uh, of 1981, at uh, over 15%, and rolling down to, uh, to where we are today, which I think is about one spot, six, seven. It's one of the most uh, striking charts in financial markets, it only goes down, and it goes down from a really high peak. Now, some of that was a unique historical context of the 1970s, uh, the Volcker Fed uh, finally breaking inflation. But from 1990, uh, at around, uh, it looks like around eight, uh, eight and a half percent, down to we are where we are today. It's a striking, striking deceleration on that rate. 
No, it really is. It's been it's been an incredible forty year bull market, uh, a bull market that's probably over. Uh, I don't know uh, how this that this all ends, but um, it, it's been pretty astonishing. But I, I do think it is over. Uh, I don't I don't know again how it plays out from here. I do think that twenty twenty one will be sort of a, a, a shock for bond markets with the inflation story that that I see unfolding. Yeah. Um, but it, ha- it has been extraordinary. But, th- but keep in mind, though, we can't just look at that interest rate in isolation. Right. We have to marry that with the amount of debt. So, yes, we have, a very, we have very low financing costs, but that is on a pile of debt that is so dramatically higher than each year over the prior 40 years. So 40 years ago, we had that higher interest rate, but a low level of debt. Now, right. obviously, we have the reverse, an extraordinary level of debt. And, and, and a low level of interest rates, but that level of debt is with us. That's not changing. And if rates have bottomed uh, and they have only one way to go and that is higher, well, then that turns that level of, of debt uh, into potentially toxic paper, depending on who the creditor is. I'm sorry, who the debtor is. Yeah. And are you talking now specifically here about the Fed balance sheet? Are you talking about, are you talking about private debt? Tell us a little bit about all of the above. Certainly all the above. Yeah. Uh, we know, I mean, essentially right now, central bank uh, policy, zero rates, low rates, QE, that's not helping economic growth. All it is doing is greasing the capital markets. It's helping the big companies then that have access to the capital markets, and it's financing uh, these debts and deficits. That's all it's doing. It's not, it's not incentivizing companies to borrow or households to borrow that they wouldn't have done otherwise. It's not... It's it's certainly damaging the world's banking sector by by killing their their, their profit margins on loans and and therefore their profits. Uh, so it's actually restrictive policy uh, for the rest of the economy. So uh, it, it's just financing these 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 exploding debts and deficits, and and it, it'll work and, and until it doesn't. Yeah. Now, you talked a little bit about the uncertainty that we have about uh, potential future outcomes. Uh, obviously, with the understanding that none of us has a crystal ball, what are some of the ranges of scenarios that you see potentially uh, for 2021 with this setup? Well, from, from a positioning standpoint, I'm positioned for this, this reflation, you know, being long commodity stocks and, and, and banks and, and value stuff and, and, and sort of shying away from the, the overvalued Good fundamentals, but overvalued areas of, of, of the technology area. But right. on the other hand, you know, I almost hope that I'm wrong because if I'm right and you start printing three to four percent annualized inflation numbers, uh, I can be sure that the ten-year yield is not going to still be at ninety-three basis points. It's right. going to be higher, and I know that there's going to be extraordinary pressure on the Fed to uh, at least NQE start to possibly raise interest rates, even though it's going to be very slow and they're going to drag their feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and I, I like to um, look at a few different instances over the last five or six years in the European bond market, because I think that is potentially telling that as much as central banks feel that they can suppress longer term rates through QE and, and, and what they do on the short ends, the, the, the market some, sometimes can fight back. And I think it was 2015 or 2016, the German 10-year, 10-year yield went from six basis points to 1% in two months. This is not a third world country. This is not a, a third world bond market. Six basis points to 100 basis points 
in two months. And the, the Italian bond market had a complete hissy fit a few years ago when everyone was worried about politics and, 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 and the blow up in their budget deficit and wiped out years of, of ECB QE in, in terms of a, a spike in interest rates. So just when you think that central banks have everything under control and right. can forever suppress rates, I do think we have seen scenarios. And, and again, if I'm right on this inflation story, uh, there is going to be quite a battle between the market and central banks, uh, particularly on the longer end. Yeah. You know, there's this argument that says that effectively when central banks hold uh, rates too low for too long, uh, what you create is uh, the illusion of stability, that you actually have these tectonic shifts happening underneath the surface that aren't visible uh, until things potentially, potentially blow up. Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, when you, when you, now I don't know where the S&P 500 goes because I have more of my opinions on individual groups, uh, some positive, some negative, but you look at the S&P in totality, it's trading at 19 times 2022 earnings. So you have to, I mean, that kind of multiple, that's a fragile system. That, that is not a stable one. When you have interest rates as low as they are, when you have debt levels as high as they are, all fed by this artificial uh, rate of, of, of interest rates, right. that creates an unstable environment. Now, the banking system may seem fine because of the capital that they have, right. but the markets itself, to me, seem you know fragile just because of of, of what what's juicing it. And right. when I get to the point of where 2021, the markets can be determined by what central banks do and how they respond to the scenario that I described, just by reducing the pace of QE, for example, even though they're still doing it, just look at a balloon. Air is going into that balloon. It's blowing it up. But if less air goes into that balloon, there's still air going in it, but the balloon starts to contract. So any change in central bank activity next year, I think would more than offset from an earnings perspective, a multiple perspective, uh, the, the benefits of the vaccine and what I see is going to be a, definitely a better economy. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, in the worst case scenario, you talk about the potential for a revolt in bond markets. We're talking about cost push inflation driven by commodities. Is there a risk of a 1970s stagflation uh, style event on the horizon? Well, I, what I think could happen is you get a, a, a burst of growth that is very good, but along with it, that inflation side as well. And at some point, that rise in inflation, that rise in rates, then in itself ends up slowing growth because we are a consumer dependent economy. So you raise the cost of living by three to four percent. If that, that if you don't get uh, coincident increases in wages, well, that means lower real wages. That eventually means to lower consumer spending in a slower economy. If you get that rise in longer term interest rates, that and then affects access to capital. It starts to affect companies' ability to roll over debt. Uh, then that in itself could also slow growth. So it, it, it could be sort of staged out. Yeah. Um, but I, at least I, I, I'm of the belief that, and I think I said this with Ed the last time I was on Real Vision, that, and, and, and I was buying and I was optimistic on all the stocks that got hammered on the shutdown, on COVID, believing that, medis, that the medical community was going to come up with effective vaccines and that we finally get it. And you know, th those areas of the markets have done well, but you know, lunch is not free here with, with, again, central banks that 
rationalize what they did this year because of COVID. Well, how do they rationalize the same policy next year without COVID? Right. Yeah. Sobering thoughts. Peter, as we come to the end here, final thoughts on your outlook on potential positioning and just the global state of where you find us right now. So I'd be really keeping my eye on the 30-year bond yield as really the important piece of the market that is free of, of, of Fed manipulation in terms of sending its message of where it sees growth and inflation. And that if this inflation story does pick up steam and starts to show up in the statistics like it did, well, anecdotally in the, in the PMIs today, that the multiples we're trading at in parts of the market are going to be tough to sustain. On the flip side, areas of the market that have been left for dead, like energy, which I'm a big bull uh, in that group, and agriculture and precious metals, and in areas of the market where you can still find stocks that are trading at eight, nine, ten times earnings uh, that are still seeing uh, growth in, in earnings and cash flow, uh, and with good dividend yields, that there are part there. There is another part of the market that is not technology that could potentially outperform technology uh, if PE multiples compress. Sounds like a major regime shift, uh, sector rotation, and uh, this uh, this shift that we keep hearing rumored uh, from growth to value. I, I, I think it's here. I, I really do believe that it's here. And the the ultimate um, catalyst to me was that vaccine, mm-hmm. uh, because then you, you you I mean look at Zoom as the perfect example. I'm sure Zoom's going to have some great growth rates over the next couple of years, and people are still going to use it every single day. But there's less reason to put a hundred thirty billion dollar market cap on that company uh, than it was. Uh, pre-vaccine, to use yeah. that as an example of a frothy uh, tech stock. Yeah, very well said, and perhaps the perfect metaphor. Yes. Peter Bookfar, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ash. It was fun. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.